If you never saw the stars, candles were enough. Chapter 8, page 60, The Dream Thieves. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And we're the, the Raven, Raven Girls. Girls. Welcome to our Raven Circle podcast. Where we talk about five dysfunctional teenagers and why you usually don't want to throw one of your best friends out of a second story window. <laughs> usually. <laughs> <laughs> this is episode 18 and we're covering chapters 8 through 11 of The Dream Thieves. And I spelled thieves wrong again. <laughs> Right in front of you. I know. <laughs> Literally right in front of you. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh I'm wiping tears out of my eyes. All right. We will also be taking a deep dive on the cultural influence of the Scots Irish in Appalachia. Woohoo! I'm Yay. very excited about this one. Yeah. Disclaimers. This is an analysis podcast. We'll be discussing the Raven Cycle as a cycle. This means we are spoilerific, so you'll probably want to have read the books before listening. We'll use pronunciations from the audiobooks, and page numbers are referenced from the paperback editions. And a disclaimer from me, this podcast has a Teen Plus rating. There will be canon levels of adult content, including Ronan swearing, 300 Foxway drinking, Kavinsky lewdness, and no gray man violence. Okay, let's get into the episode. All right. <laughs> okay, announcement for the giveaway. Yay. So the giveaway schedule. Right now, my plan is to put the posts for the giveaway up on all social media, Tuesday, January 22nd, 2019, and then end the giveaway on January 31st. So that's a Tuesday to a Thursday. And then allow the first weekend of February to contact winners and have them claim their prizes. Okay. And we did get some of the small art pieces from Jamie. Jamie is a mm-hmm. on Tumblr. I had originally thought that I would give those away in the spring because we actually actually had some other prizes to give away mm. for that first giveaway of the Dream Thieves. I'm still not quite sure. I might give hers away first and then do the other giveaway later, but just keep an eye out on mm. the social media. So, And we want to remind listeners about the sensitive content of these chapters. We do talk about character struggles with the aftermath and healing from abuse. Please do know your own limits and practice self-care as we continue to go through these discussions. Yes, please. Thank you. All right. So getting right into it. Chapter eight. It's an Adam POV chapter. Things are not all well at the new Adam Parish homestead. His floor and ceiling keep threatening to kill him if the creepy sentient forest doesn't get there first. <laughs> also, his girlfriend seems to be not so much, and financial troubles are just a bounce check away. But there's a mysterious rent benefactor. Something smells funky, like boat shoes worn without socks. <laughs> Uh, All right. So to get a little more serious, I have to admit, I was avoiding and dreading this chapter. I had to keep walking away and then coming back to it. Yeah, I was. was I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A couple of scenes in particular, just like. Right. Really, mm -hmm. it is tough. So Adam Parrish had bigger problems than Ronan's dreams. Maybe, but you do certainly think about him a lot. Yeah, okay, yeah. And then there's a little throwaway line, St. Agnes being built in the late 1700s. It just seems like like so early to me as a West Coaster. We don't have anything that, that that's that yeah, old. Even, yeah, it's like even on the East Coast, that seems sort of old. Right. But when you like think about that in England, there is a oh, there's gosh. a tavern that has been literally an active tavern for the past 1,000 years. Yeah, yeah. 
No, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and he has to avoid smashing his head heroically. How does one do that exactly? Like, smash well, your head heroically? When a person is very, very tall <laughs> and the ceiling is very, very low. <laughs> well, yes, but, but heroically. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> the building smelled of plaster, must, and timber dust, and very old flowers. Yeah, I've been in places that mm-hmm. that smell that like dry that. Mm-hmm. Smell a flat mattress on the bare floor, plastic bins everywhere. That is so first apartment chic. <laughs> uh huh. And then also his mattress is just laying on the floor. So when Ronan spends the night, he's literally laying right next to him. Aww. <laughs> It was nothing, but it was Adam Parrish's nothing. How he hated and loved it. It's like, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Both pride and shame in the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just like, it's not much, but damn it, it's mine. Right. And he's working hard for that Oh, place, absolutely so. he is. And then every right to be proud. Right. And then there were the three part-time jobs that paid his Aglenby tuition. So he has the trailer factory, Boyd's Auto, mm-hmm. and the warehouse that he's working at night. Right. And when he got home, he was ruined for anything else. Tired, always tired. And I know we've mentioned it multiple times before, but he's just working himself to death. Yeah. In fact, as he gets to St. Agnes, it says, little lights danced at the corner of his vision as he chained his bike. Mm -hmm. And I find this interesting. It's played off so subtly, but to me, it's actually likely that it's caves water reaching out. Uh Uh-huh, quite possibly. Mm Mm-hmm. And he thinks to himself that blue was pretty in a way that was physically painful. I've known people like that. I usually run screaming from people like that. (laughs) And he was attracted to her like a heart attack. Uh, huh? (laughs) Well, as previously established, Adam is attracted to myocardial infarctions. (laughs) Because he says later, and here was Ronan like a heart attack that never stopped. Adam says this out loud to Blue, his (laughs) ex-girlfriend. On page 114 of The Raven King. (laughs) Perhaps that's part of why they're exes. Yeah, well. (laughs) I mean, not that that specific instance. Yeah. (laughs) Blue was another troubling thing. She was like Gansy in that she wanted him to explain himself. Actually, what they're both asking is to help Adam meet his needs. Mm -hmm. But Adam is in that place where he's incapable of asking for help. But it also infuriates him for people to assume what he needs. Right. And I can't let this go by because it is, to me, the classic Adam. He thinks want and need were words that got eaten smaller and smaller. And then he goes on to list his dreams. He's starting with the stainless steel condo and the silky black car. And he ends with things like toilet paper and deodorant. Mm -hmm. It's like this whole passage. He starts with dreaming big and then things get smaller and smaller as reality sets in. Yeah, it's... It's painful. Yeah. Because like you said, like so much of what he lists is just basic stuff. And it always breaks my heart to be reminded that Adam Parrish's greatest desire is just to have his fucking basic needs met. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. To feel awake when my eyes are open. Relatable. (laughs) Uh, mm -hmm. He'd been stepping over the mail for days as if it might disappear if he failed to acknowledge it. I am guilty of this exact thing. Yeah. For the exact same reasons. Ignoring it. Mm -hmm. It might go away. 
They were meant for the eyes of affluent parents in houses decorated with the framed images of their children. (laughs) How much this must grind him down. Mm -hmm. I can't even fathom the strength Adam Parrish has to fight for a better life. I I did not have that, that's for sure. (laughs) He thinks to himself that this was easier when we, as in Blue and I, didn't know each other. And I'm like, but you still don't really. And it's only been a few weeks. And the fact that, like, you know, it's getting harder instead of easier to, like, talk is probably not a good sign. Yeah, they're definitely very stilted in this whole chapter. And I noted that when Blue says she figured she'd come say hi before her shift, it's like, why? She doesn't doesn't seem super interested. Mm. It's just like, yeah, it's... (laughs) I see it as a plot point. If that makes sense, like, you need the conflict to show where Adam is. But Mm. I don't see it as a character point, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. His mind was a box he tipped out at the end of his shifts. Yeah, sometimes you have to do that. Just once you leave work, work's at work. Otherwise, you're like, it's bad for your mental health. You gotta compartmentalize. Mm Mm-hmm. And Adam thinking that being offered the race tech job was flattering, but that he wasn't killing himself at Aglanby to end up a fancy mechanic. I'm like, good on him for not settling for something he doesn't want, even if it would be a good job. Right. And he's like, well, it might have been good enough if he hadn't known what else was out there. Mm-hmm. If you've never saw the stars, candles were enough. Mm-hmm. And this feels very much like Adam's version of Blue something more. Mm-hmm. It comes from the same place, I think, right. inside them. Well, and each of them kind of is longing for something. Something more. Mm-hmm. It's so focused, though. It's very much like Adam. The comparison is a very pointed one and very neat in its construction. Absolutely. And he ends up hugging Blue and holding her, but that wasn't enough. He ached inside, but there was a line he wasn't allowed to cross, and he was never sure where it started. Surely this was close to it. He felt dangerous and kinetic. And sometimes I wonder if he isn't more attracted to the idea of having a romantic relationship and having a positive physical contact than he is to Blue herself. I disagree, because even later, when they're no longer even close to being together, Mm -hmm. Adam often thinks about how pretty he finds Blue. And like in The Raven King, he took pains to stare at neither her breasts nor her lips. Mm -hmm. Adam and Blue were no longer together, but being broken up and aware that it was good for both of them had not diminished the aesthetic appeal of either set of body parts. Like he Mm -hmm. finds her attractive. That's page 56 in The Raven King. I think from his perspective, it is completely sincere. It's interesting, though, that his attraction stirs up feelings that are dangerous and kinetic. Mm Mm-hmm. And Adam isn't sure where the line is, so he does lean in to kiss her. And Blue reacts so understandably violently that it's easy to see why Adam is shocked. Yeah, exactly. They stared at each other, both hurt. Yeah, differing expectations will do that to you. You yeah. got you got to talk about these things. Right. And yeah, at no point will I ever argue that Blue owes Adam anything other than an explanation. But I do wish she'd give him an explanation. Absolutely. And there's a quick hint of a timeline here when Adam says that Blue told him not to kiss her six weeks ago. Uh-huh. You mentioned they haven't really been doing this for too terribly long. Uh-huh. And then the line, he still ached. His skin was a constellation of nerves endings. And it's just so raw. As awkward as it is, I can see Adam's reason for asking Blue if something had happened in the past. Her reaction is seemingly out of proportion from his perspective. Absolutely. He just wanted an answer. He wanted to know if it was him or if it was her. 
And the answer is kind of just you as a pair. Yeah. And Blue is keeping a pretty big secret here. So take a drink. (laughs) Drink. The answer is just no. Isn't that good enough? The correct answer to this was yes, he knew it. I can totally understand Adam's frustrations here. But Blue is too inexperienced to realize that, yes, her no should be good enough, but she needs to do some communicating about this if she wants this to work. Right. And I think one of the reasons I'm coming down so hard on this in general is because this sort of false conflict through lack of communication is one of my least favorite storytelling devices. Mm. However, speaking as a human in the real world that has actually done this... I have to give both of them some Absolutely. some slack. <laughs> like they're both inexperienced and they just they're, they're trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He tried not to let it sound like he was still hurt, but he was and it did. She tried not to let it sound like she was hurt, but she was and it did. And this is really painful and I can see it from both sides. Mm-hmm. He's trying his best to be patient and she is trying her best to protect him. Uh-huh. Adam stood in a cold shower until his heart stopped steaming. What do you want, Adam? He didn't even know. And I'm like, I have so been there. I know. And God, I love the phrase, until his heart stopped steaming. Uh Uh-huh. He caught a half image of himself in the mirror and startled. It's sort of mirror scrying. It's something we talked about in episode six during our deep dive on scrying. Mm Mm-hmm. Something about his own reflection seemed wrong. And just like that, he was thinking of Capeswater. Wrongness makes him think of Capeswater. I think, as I said above, he's catching images from Capeswater. It's uh-huh. sort of creeping into his consciousness. It's invading the edges of his vision. Okay. He hadn't owned many things in his life. Properly owned them, him and no one else. But now he did. This bargain. His way or nothing. And it, mm. this is something that he's done his way on his own. And mm-hmm. I can see why he would hold, hold, hold on some to pride. It. Yeah, hold on to that and hold pride in it. Right. And he's thinking about his bargain. And the entire ritual felt swimmy and surreal. Like he'd been watching himself perform it. Kind of interesting. Like, was he kind of dissociating during the whole thing? Yeah, maybe. Or I was thinking maybe his consciousness was being shared between the Tyrielentes. Ah, that's a good yeah. thought. He'd gone fully prepared to make a sacrifice, but he wasn't quite sure how the specific one he'd eventually made had come to him. This brings back the question we had earlier about what Adam was prepared to do. Yeah, I hate to think about it. I find it so interesting that he isn't sure how the specific one had come to him. It was perhaps another thing being fed to him by Cave's water. Mm -hmm. Something odd about the flow of water across his skin, as if it were in slow motion. That is super creepy and definitely caves water. Yeah, his thoughts were a confusion of translucent drops clinging to metal and rain trembling off green leaves. Right there, it absolutely shows that the forest is reaching out and influencing him. Mm-hmm. And Adam climbs out of the shower, his spine aching, shoulders aching, soul aching. Mm-hmm. Jesus, this poor kid. He's not sure if he fears or hopes that Blue is already gone. Mm-hmm. And then he comes out of the shower to find Blue talking to Mrs. Ramirez. Mm -hmm. And he thinks to himself, she probably had an official title that Ronan knew, Sub Nun or something. (laughs) That's just such a funny line. Yeah. And also, he makes this connection with Ronan here, Mm -hmm. but he blames Gansey in in about 30 seconds. Yeah. And are sub-nuns even a thing? Would she be married if she were a nun? I have so many questions, Adam. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he got Mrs. Ramirez. (laughs) No, she wouldn't be married if she were a nun. (laughs) Not a Catholic nun. (laughs) 
And then Adam's thought process when he sees Mrs. Ramirez is an encapsulation of poverty thinking. She would tell him that there were insufficient funds, and Adam would scramble to push money into the yawning hole of the account, a return check fee to the bank, and another one to Mrs. Ramirez, an endless, pathetic loop of insufficiency. Yes. Oh my god, I so relate to Adam right there. Yeah, I've definitely dug in my car seat to find change to put gas in the uh-huh. tank. Yeah. And there is a pretty amazing online game, a little sidebar, <laughs> if you can call it a game, that illustrates this perfectly, and I wanted to mention it. Okay. It's called Spent, an interactive poverty simulator. Mm-hmm. It was developed by McKinney and the Urban Ministries of Durham in 2011. It's basically a way to build empathy for people who might, you know, you're not in their shoes. Uh-huh. So this game kind of takes you through that. It's described as an interactive game where the player must survive poverty and navigate life living on minimum wage. The description also states, work hard, do the right thing. Homelessness is something that will never happen to me. Sometimes all it takes is one life-changing experience to land you on the streets. A job loss, death of a loved one, divorce, natural disaster, or serious illness. Next thing you know, a chain of events sends things spiraling out of control. How would you cope? Where would you go? What would you do? You would figure something out, right? Mm. And it's It is really tough to play through it. It only takes about 15 minutes. And Mm -hmm. I'll put a link in the show notes. I would highly encourage folks to just, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting, the choices you have to make. But back to the chapter. (laughs) Mrs. Ramirez is actually pretty adorable. She's doing her very best to lie to Adam. And Adam is so braced for bad news that he just doesn't understand what she's saying at first. That his rent will be reduced by $200 a month. Yeah, like, you're not expecting to hear stuff like that. No, no, exactly (laughs) not. And then he finally picks up the letter from Aglenby and opens it up. And of course, it's a raise in tuition. Which is what he was expecting. Yes. The difference is exactly the amount of money that his rent has just been reduced. Coincidence? I think not. Uh-huh. <laughs> and of course, Ronan is about as subtle as a sledgehammer, and he's probably counting on Gansey <laughs> taking the blame for this. <laughs> Another note, Aglenby is requiring 50% of next year's tuition due by the end of the month. Man. In our mailbag episode, I talked about Woodbury Forest School, which is a local Ivy League prep school that Maggie had said would be similar to Aglenby. The tuition there is over 50000 a year. So even deducting like 10000 for room and board, he'd still have to have over 20000 in the bank. I don't think I've ever had that much money in the bank in my life. Not at one time. No. No wonder he saves candy bars to eat for lunch the next day. You know, this poor guy. Mm-hmm. And he thinks to himself that the rest of the Aglenby boys are immune to life's troubles. Yeah, well, sort of. They're better insulated, at least. Yeah. And it's not like we readers would think that Gansey was above throwing money around. (laughs) Uh Because we saw him do it in the Raven Boys when he bribed the Aglenby counselor for $30,000 to keep Ronan in school. And that was page 291 of the Raven Boys. Mm -hmm. It's like, I almost feel like that may have been done specifically so that we would also blame Gansey here. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. probably. 
and he thinks to himself, only death couldn't be swiped away by a credit card. He doesn't know about Gansey yet. Yeah, and technically money can even stave off death for a while in some cases. <laughs> if you have, you know, enough yeah, it, money. Yeah, it makes it easier to stave That's, off anyway. Gansey's case just happens to not be one of right. those. And then Adam thinks about Gansey trying to bribe Mrs. Ramirez. He pictured it, a folded over check, hastily pocketed, gazes not met. And we get the truth of it next chapter. Ronan basically storming in with wads of cash. (laughs) Which Which is so inordinately funny. It totally is. And then Blue is trying to get Adam to talk about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And Adam is like, she has no right to pity me. She and Adam are in the same boat after all. Wasn't she on her way to work the same as he'd just come from it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, sweetie, there's a difference between pity versus sympathy and solidarity. Right. You don't have to carry everything. Yeah, very true. <laughs> but he doesn't know that yet. He will mm-hmm. eventually. Anger snarled up in him, instantly owning him. It was a binary emotion in the parishes. No such thing as slightly mad, only nothing, and then this all-encompassing fury. And I've, I've seen this, the zero to 60 in less than a second. Mm-hmm. His voice was terrible. He heard it. I don't want your damn pity. Regardless of everything that she is keeping from him, I 100% support Blue walking the fuck out and never coming back. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. She was looking at the box that served as his nightstand. Somehow it had moved several feet away from the bed. Only now did he remember the act of kicking the box. This is actually exactly the way my dad's temper works. Yeah, my note was very similar. It's much like my family. <laughs> so during the mailbag episode, we were asked by Tumblr user Painted Polar Bear if we were going to talk more about Adam's anger issues. And they very rightly pointed out that this is not the first time that we've seen Adam strike out physically. He does so in The Raven Boys as well when he's talking to Gansey in the carport outside of his house. It Mm. says, without warning, Adam slammed a small box of nails off the ledge beside him. The sound it made on the concrete startled both of them. It's page 134 of The Mm. Raven Boys. And sort of another sidebar or a mini deep dive, because I do want to look more at how Adam's anger compares with others in the series later. But I do want to say, like, even though we're not therapists or psychologists or psychiatrists, I do feel like it's important for us to avoid talking like we're diagnosing these characters Mm -hmm. with particular disorders. But we still point out when they exhibit behaviors consistent with things like PTSD and anxiety. That said, I do want to talk a very little bit about something called intermittent explosive disorder. And of course, I'll link to a description of sort of the diagnosis page of what that is. In a blog post in Psychology Today written in 2010, it's noted... Anger disorders result primarily from the long-term mismanagement of anger, a process in which normal existential anger turns insidiously over time into resentment, bitterness, hatred, and hair-trigger rage. Anger disorders may also be caused or exacerbated by psychosis, neurological impairment, and substance abuse, all of which can impair one's ability to resist aggressive, angry, or violent impulses. Mm. 
And another section I felt was impactful when talking about what might be going on with Adam. For the most part, anger disorders cannot be blamed on faulty neurology, defective genes, or bad biochemistry. They arise from a failure to recognize, fully acknowledge, and consciously address anger as it arises before it becomes pathological and doubly dangerous. Typically, anger disorders are deeply rooted in childhood frustration, neglect, abandonment, or physical and emotional abuse. Which is exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, of course, like so many survivors of childhood abuse, much like Adam, there always seems to be the question of if they will then become perpetrators. Mm -hmm. Because you learn what you have modeled to you during your childhood. Right. And also... If you're internalizing that this is the way anger looks, exactly, then that's the way anger looks to you. Mm-hmm. And I want to briefly talk about something in that passage above the quote, bad genes, unquote. There have been studies, including one recently conducted at Harvard, that abuse can physically change the genetic code of sperm Mm -hmm. and can be passed on to offspring. In one study of mice, it was found that traumatic experiences can actually work themselves into the gene line. When a male mouse becomes afraid of a specific smell, this fear is somehow transmitted into his sperm, the study found. His pups will also be afraid of the odor and will pass that fear down to their pups. Hmm. Yeah, I have heard other things about like hardships that your grandparents went through affect you and affect your genes. Absolutely. They're Mm -hmm. starting, I mean, obviously these are relatively new studies, but yeah, it's such an interesting place where science is taking it. Fascinating. Yeah. In the sample study at Harvard, research based on a small sample of men, and I think it was like 30, 40 people, Mm -hmm. found differences in chemical marks within the genetic code of those who had experienced abuse as children. The scientist examined a chemical process termed methylation. Okay, awesome. (laughs) Biochemist. I was like, uh, Shannon will know how to pronounce that. Yes, I do know how to pronounce that. (laughs) in DNA from sperm samples and found noticeable differences that appeared to distinguish victims from non-victims. Not only do these findings suggest a long-term physical impact of trauma, the presence of these changes in sperm cells suggests its legacy may even be passed between generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't want to do too much more than present this information because I do find it valuable when understanding Adam's mindset and the sorts of trauma he might be struggling with and how pervasive it can be. Right. And Blue handles this so much better than I would have. Yeah. She's just calm and she's like, I'll be outside. Come get me if you can be human. Right. I can't handle outbursts like that. I would have just like broken down. Yeah. She's she's definitely doing better than I would have here. Yeah. <laughs> Adam is trying really hard to handle this productively. He's so afraid of becoming his dad. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's even thinking about it and wanting to be better means he's head and shoulders above him already. Right. And I liked he calmed enough to see how his anger was a separate thing inside of him. A dingy surprise gift from his father. Is this what made him shove my face into the fridge? 
Adam is actually doing dialectical behavioral therapy here, all on his own. He's logically taking apart his anger and removing himself emotionally from the situation. Mm-hmm. And then he thinks to himself, he'd never escape. Not really. Too much monster blood in him. He'd left the den, but his brooding betrayed him. Oh, God, sweetie. <laughs> yeah, I have no words to describe how much my heart hurts for that. Mm. <sighs> Another glimpsed wrong reflection, and he thinks the words, fix me. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I went back and there wasn't really a wrong reflection, but oh, he kind of, I thought it- he says he sort of catches an image and you can't catch an image. It's more like he saw something out of the corner of his eye. Mm. He's scrambling for comfort. He's thinking of what he would ask for the favor from Glendower. Ordinarily, words would tumble and lull through his mind, but this time all he could think was fix me. Mm -hmm. These seem to be words coming directly from Caveswater or the ley line. Right, because that's what it asked him to do later. Exactly. But the sensation lingered, an idea that he had glimpsed or felt or remembered some movement in the corner of his eye. Uh Adam's worry that something else had been destroyed on one of those tense, wretched night. This kid, man. I know. He caught another image and he turned. And something about that phrasing just Mm -hmm. fascinates me. Mm -hmm. captivates me. I wonder about Blue. Does she just stay outside the door? Does (laughs) does he ever go outside to talk to her? Does she even know what's going on? (laughs) I don't know. Like, I know he, like, forces himself to not follow after her. Correct. Correct. Mm. So all of this is actually happening inside the apartment while she's sitting on the the step, but it doesn't actually go past this. So Also, there was one little detail that I forgot to write down. Mm. Is there like a point where it's like, oh, Blue moved to the center of the room so she wouldn't bump her head? Yeah. I'm just like, holy crap. (laughs) If Blue's bumping her head. I know. (laughs) I saw that too. And I was like... (laughs) <laughs> he's like he's like six one uh, or so. She's five foot. And I, yeah. I, I know, like, if I am bumping my head somewhere, yeah. no one else can freaking get into that <laughs> no, face. No. Yeah. No. I I noticed that as well. That was near <laughs> the beginning when they walked in. <laughs> All right, so chapter nine is a Ronin point of view chapter. Ronin, Gansey, and Noah are spending their evening in the bourgeoisie playground, trying to keep Ronin out of trouble as Gansey talks on the phone to Adam, and Noah gets distracted by glitter. Mm-hmm. The ley line surges, Noah disappears, and there's a cleanup in aisle seven. <laughs> Uh, I have to laugh at my own jokes. Okay. (laughs) It starts out, Dollar City was one of those few stores that allows pets. Mm -hmm. And I think, Chainsaw or Gansey's dog? (laughs) Kind of both of them. And then, when Dollar City had said pets welcome, Dollar City wasn't certain they meant carrion birds. Okay, Chainsaw then. (laughs) I noted this bit too. I also enjoyed Noah trying to make the alligator faces. That guy. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I love Noah. Yeah. Ronan was very much enjoying the clerk's petulant gaze. Of course he is. I knew you'd note that. I know. Also, my phone typed that in as gaze, as in men loving men. Predictive text, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) The oh, hey, was accompanied by a definite change in the timbre of Gansey's voice. Mm -hmm. That meant it was Adam, and that somehow stoked Ronan's anger. (laughs) And, of course, Ronan, then, is trying to get Gansey's attention, Uh and he shows him the turkey clock. (laughs) 
found you, Gansey said. Gansey, you nerd. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and my note was, this totally should have been our quote. Yeah. <laughs> Top of the episode, mon Dieu, said Gansey. <laughs> Ronan wasn't exactly sure why he was angry. Um, and then he goes on to describe exactly why he's angry. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is definitely the moment when I started catching on that Ronan had some boy-shaped feelings. Uh-huh. I, however, am absolutely clueless when it comes to such things. And I didn't catch on until Ronan and Adam literally hook up. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was just like, what? Oh, oh okay. I guess this is happening. <laughs> They spent like all the blue lily lily blue, like complimenting each other's eyelashes. So Ronan thinks that Gansey is looking human, attainable, is actually the word that he uses. His unbuttoned collar revealed a good portion of his collarbone. I also have a collarbone fetish, so I'm with you there. (laughs) Buddy, I like a good collarbone. There's something about a clavicle that's super. Anyway, (laughs) I start drifting off into like... Different podcast. (laughs) Okay. Hey. Kavinsky lewdness, all right? There we go. Okay. (laughs) Never mind. Okay. Continue. (laughs) Ronan thinks that Gansey is nothing like his rough and ready family, but tonight, Gansey's hair was scuffed and his cargo shorts were greasy ruin from mucking over the pig, and he was very clearly a real human, and this somehow made Ronan want to smash his fist through a wall. (laughs) (laughs) Feelings are hard. They are. And folks have interpreted this to mean that Ronan is crushing on Gansey. While that might be a little bit of the case, when paired with the above statement about Gansey's change of voice when talking to Adam, it might be a little easier for me, at least, to extrapolate that Ronan is upset about Gansey's relationship to Adam. Uh Uh-huh. I noted this whole section, too. Feelings are definitely hard, indeed. (laughs) Yeah. Adam tells him that he sees dead people. Ronan makes the crack that he also sees dead people. (laughs) I can't believe I'm just now 18 episodes in making a sixth sense joke. I know, joke. how did this happen? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I did make a sixth sense joke and I just haven't, like, I blocked that, it that out. That whole scene is just is hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Adam thought he saw an apparition. I'm, I'm seeing an apparition right now. Right now. <laughs> and then Noah made a rude gesture, a hilariously unthreatening act coming from him, like a growl from a kitten. No comment. <laughs> I am glaring at Navita. Uh, <laughs> and then, I'm like, I'm 38 feet of orange furry death. Yeah. Also, I will never be feared. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a Slytherin and Hufflepuff post that I posted to the Raven Girls uh, I Tumblr. Think you, I think you shared that to me. Yes. Yes. Because it was so incredibly us that even though it was completely off topic, I had to post it. Uh, I loved the Hufflepuff is cranky and he's like wrapped up in a <laughs> blanket burrito on the couch and Slytherin says, uh oh, is the Huffle monster back again? And then Hufflepuff. I am a force to be reckoned with. Fear my wrath. Slytherin recording everything on Snapchat. Fucking superb, you funky little Huffle. <laughs> like, that is so awesome. <laughs> It is so us, 100%. You are totally a Slytherin, and I'm absolutely 100% Hufflepuff. <laughs> I think technically I'm Slitherclaw, but... 
That doesn't exist. Possibly. It doesn't exist. <laughs> All right. So Ronan thinks about Kavinsky's gift. It was not an entirely comfortable feeling to think of the other boys studying him that closely. And then he thinks about how the five bands are precisely right, down to the tone of the leather. With the hundreds of Mitsubishis we see later, how long did it take Kavinsky to get these perfect? Yeah, the mystery of this was so interesting, even the first time. Mm -hmm. And reading it again, knowing what is actually going on, brings up so many more interesting questions. I know. And then there's a whole paragraph about how nighttime makes missing home worse for Ronan. He's in so much pain. Uh It also explains why he gets so restless at night. It's like, I know, I highlight this whole section Mm because it's so sad. The oven mitts were his mother at dinner time. Mm -hmm. The slam of the cash register was his father coming home at midnight. Mm -hmm. And the air freshener were family trips to New York. And it's like, I know that feel of everything reminding you of something you miss. But I can visit home, and he can't, and it's still so close. Yeah. Home was so close at night. He could be there in 20 minutes. He wanted to smash everything off those shelves. He's very frustrated, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't know what to do with that. Right. He has no good outlet for it. Right. And Noah being entranced by shiny things is, like, the most adorable thing ever. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I like to think I'm blue, but maybe I'm secretly Noah. (laughs) Secretly Noah. (laughs) Gansey offers Adam to stay at Monmouth. Mm-hmm. And Ronan thinks he'll never do it. It wasn't the bruised home Adam desperately and shamefully missed. Mm-hmm. Nor was it Monmouth Manufacturing, the new home Adam's pride wouldn't allow. Sometimes Ronan thought Adam was so used to the right way being painful that he doubted any path that didn't come with agony. Mm-hmm. This is so heartbreaking and astute. Absolutely. I marked this too because it's Adam in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And it's really good to see that Ronan recognizes that. Uh-huh. Like he sees Adam in a way that nobody else mm-hmm is seeing Adam. He's really such an observer, like, Mm -hmm. when you see his point-of-view chapters. Yeah. Gansey and Adam are on the phone. Adam is obviously accusing Gansey of fixing his rent. Uh Gansey's voice is low and furious. You're right. I absolutely don't understand. I don't know, and I won't ever. Mm -hmm. Gansey's privilege is getting dragged out, but at least he's acknowledging it now. His perceptions are changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at least he's trying. He's really trying right now. Yeah. And it's interesting that Adam doesn't think of Ronan right away, since Ronan helped him get the apartment in the first place. Uh Adam, with probable help from Ronan moved from Monmouth Manufacturing to a room belonging to St. Agnes Church Mm -hmm. and page 404 in The Raven Boys. Right. Yeah, like I said earlier, Adam definitely connects Ronan with the church, but just can't think that anyone but Gansey would want to help him financially. Right. But one of the marvelous things about Ronan Lynch was that no one ever expected him to do anything nice for anyone. (laughs) What a goddamn Mm softie. Yeah, okay, he is. Yeah. And Ronan knew what a face looked like just before it was about to break. He'd seen it in the mirror often enough. It's like, oh my god, I want to cry. Agreed. Adam had fracture lines all over him. Tears, these boys. Uh And then Noah flickers out as the ley line surges. The clerk is annoyed at the crash. Could she Mm. see Noah? Was there just a snow globe floating in the air? (laughs) It says that it says she hadn't seen the travesty, but she clearly knew one had occurred. Yeah. So maybe there was just something that makes people look away. Uh, yeah. Somebody else's problem field. Uh huh. 
Noah sucks all of the warmth out of the room. Ronan is disturbed and Chainsaw is terrified. He laid a frozen hand over her head, comforting her, though he was not comforted. This whole scene is so creepy. Mm-hmm. Just this sudden deep cold on a summer night. And an unignorable reminder that your best friend is dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when Noah comes back, the scent of the forest when Noah had died follows him. I think, was Noah pulling another time through with him? I wonder what was going on here too. And you may be right. Or maybe the more power the Leyland has, the more power Noah has, and thus the further he can go. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when the line has no power, what's left of Noah goes back to the very point where he died. Yeah. And that would make sense. Noah says, I lost. Noah struggled for word. There was an error. It went away. The line, the the line, there was nothing left for me. Mm-hmm. Ronan becomes an asshole to Noah because, of course, he does. He snarls and replies crossly. But as we've talked about before, to Ronan, angry equals afraid. Uh Uh-huh. He didn't say, or maybe something terrible happened to Adam that day he sacrificed himself in Caveswater. Maybe he's messed up all of Henrietta by waking up the ley line. Yeah. And again, we loop back around to Adam uh-huh. because they couldn't talk about that. They couldn't talk about Adam stealing the Camaro, uh-huh. about him basically doing everything Gansey had asked him not to. Right. And then Ronan's anger ratchets up. If Adam was stupid about his pride, Gansey was stupid about Adam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Noah says, I know why you're mad directly after Ronan is thinking of Gansey and Adam. Uh, I know that line has so much more of a punch on subsequent reads because he does know all of it. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and Noah, it's not my job to tell other people's secrets. Noah is stay in his own lane journey. <laughs> all righty. Chapter 10, it's a Gansey POV chapter. Gansey continues his phone conversation with Adam, this time in the relative safety of Monmouth, where nothing can get broken, right? (laughs) Maybe if you don't live with hooligans. (laughs) Adam is somehow convinced to go to a fancy dress party at the Gansey home. This is going to go great, you guys! Yeah, absolutely! So chapter 10, it starts with Gansey back on the phone with Adam two hours later. And Gansey asks Adam to come to his mom's nomination party and says that there might be an internship in it for him. Mm -hmm. Adam goes quiet. It was hard to say if he was thinking about it or being irritated at the suggestion. Mm -hmm. Gansey and his very expensive map cracks me up. (laughs) So he's talking to Adam and rolling out this huge yards long, apparently, map Uh that he's had printed out. It's like viewed from a satellite, right? Correct. Yeah. He basically had the satellite images all stitched together and then printed out. And there's a moment where it says he unrolls it yards down, Uh like the ends yards away. It just, it cracks me up because he's thinking about it and he's like, also, it was pretty. Gansey is an aesthetic hoe. <laughs> I love this too. And I marked this paragraph with a, this is so Gansey. I know. <laughs> and though I can't blame him because I bet it's gorgeous. Yeah, I'm sure it is too. Ronan and Noah are playing. They're throwing stuff out of the windows of Monmouth Manufacturing. There was a terrific crash. Not that one, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> I am so greatly amused by this going on in the background. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> 
It was surprisingly satisfying to see acres and acres of forest and mountains and rivers unrolling across the floorboards. If he were a god, he thought this would be precisely how he'd create the new world, unrolling it like carpet. It would be extremely satisfying. Uh Also, I love that idea. Yeah. And he's thinking as he's talking to Adam, blue was a fanciful but sensible thing, like a platypus or one of those sandwiches that have been cut into circles for a fancy tea party. (laughs) Jesus, Gansey is the worst at flirting. (laughs) It's like, are they locally sourced cucumber sandwiches? Nerd. (laughs) Yes, my thoughts exactly. (laughs) And the whole section where Adam is talking about the kiss with Blue. I don't blame her, I guess, he says. It's like, Mm -hmm. poor, poor Adam. Mm. His self-esteem is already shit. I wish at the very least he would be told that it isn't his fault. Uh Uh-huh. I know, but Blue is inexperienced and bad at communicating. There's another crash from Ronan's room, followed by diabolical laughter. (laughs) Gansey wondered if he should stop them before vehicles with stripe lights did. Oh my god. (laughs) And then he thinks, maybe she was 16, maybe she was 18, maybe she was neither, maybe she was both. (laughs) I marked this too. Like, hey, even the characters don't know how old she is. Nope. Maybe she was just... Very short and remedial. Gansy, you ass. I I kind of laughed my ass off at that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And then Gansy finally admits that his actual true love is Glendower. (laughs) Yeah. And then Gansy tries to reassure Adam by saying that I think she likes you fine. Fine is not good. Fine is actually terrible. Yeah, kind of. So Gansy is thinking about his first interaction with Blue and how there were a dozen different ways he could have done it better. He really is trying to better himself and check his privilege. Mm -hmm. But then the second later he thinks, which is foolish, it had all worked out, hadn't it? Whether or not Gansy had made a first class proud of himself the moment they met didn't change anything. One, (laughs) don't flake on me now, Gansy. It does matter because learning from it can help you be a better person. Uh Two, you are totally trying to ineffectually hide the fact (laughs) that you have feelings for your BFF's girlfriend. I know. (laughs) And then again in the background, Noah shouts at Ronan, no way, man. But he didn't sound like he meant it. And Ronan is not being mean here. They are definitely just playing around. Agreed. They're having fun and blowing off steam. Mm -hmm. Ronan needs this right now. Yeah. Gansy's dream of finding Glendower gives him not joy, but relief. Freedom. Release from a burden. Which is interesting, and I didn't put this in the notes, but that's what Adam wanted, too. Uh Freedom. A release from his burdens. Right. I don't want things to get ugly, Adam said finally. Are they ugly? Gansy asks. They are a little ugly after this afternoon. Adam blames himself. Somehow they always seem to get that way. Mm. Adam says, I just want something to be simple. Yet he eventually picks Ronan. But that may indeed be the simpler option. In a lot of ways, yeah, he is the simpler, more straightforward option. Mm-hmm. And then Ronan swings out <laughs> uh, swings out the door. And he, he like just, he just pokes door. his head out. Uh, <laughs> it's my favorite. Is no out here? No reason. Just no reason. There's a beat. And then Noah comes back in. He threw me out the window. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. I laugh this hard every time I think about it. I know. I know. I just, I can picture the look of glee on Ronan's face. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like, he's just so excited. (laughs) I would be, too. I'd just be like, oh, my God. You guys. 
And then Gansey goes back to his conversation with Adam. Gansey had thought that by staying away from the forest, he'd keep the old Adam. This explains why they've been circling Cave's water, but not actually going back there. Mm, Yeah, I noted that too. All right, so we're going to go into a deep dive. Deep dive! On the Scots-Irish in Appalachia. Woohoo! Yeah. All right. Okay, so as a little intro... The Scots-Irish settlers brought with them the agricultural, music, craft, and storytelling traditions of their homeland. Living in small, relatively isolated communities, Scots-Irish settlers sustained their cultural ties through the preservation of these traditions and had a profound influence on shaping the distinctive agricultural, music, storytelling, and crafts of the Southern Appalachians. And I quite like this blurb from a book written by Karen McCarthy. And apparently she was an Irish political journalist Mm -hmm. that went through the areas where the Scots-Irish settled and talked to the people and Mm -hmm. kind of did this really cool book, which I could not find the whole thing. But it was entitled The Other Irish, The Scots-Irish Rascals Who Made America. (laughs) And the blurb is, what do Mark Twain, Neil Armstrong, and John McCain have in common. They're all descendants of a merry group of Scots-Irish braggarts that crossed the Atlantic from Ireland in the early 1700s and settled in America's South. Also known as the Other Irish, this wild bunch of patriotic, rebellious, fervently religious rascals gave us the NRA, at least 14 presidents, decisive victories in the Revolutionary War, a third of today's U.S. military, country music, Star Wars, the Munchkins, American-style democracy, and even the religious right. Not to mention NASCAR, whose roots go back to Prohibition-era moonshine runners. Yet few Americans are familiar with the Other Irish or their contributions to American culture. All right, so now let's talk about the region. Mm -hmm. The Appalachian region is a 205,000 square mile region Mm -hmm. that follows the spine of the Appalachian Mountains from southern New York to northern Mississippi. It includes all of West Virginia, woohoo, we're the only state, (laughs) and parts of 12 other states, Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Maryland, Mississippi, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. And it's also the place that I will always consider home no matter where I live. So this deep dive was a lot of fun for me and a challenge to not blab on too much. And we did that anyway. Yes. (laughs) So the history and migration... The precise focus of this deep dive, if you can call it precise, (laughs) uh, is the Scots-Irish and their influence in Appalachia. The Scots-Irish are a group of people who lived around the North Channel of the Irish Sea. They originally lived on the Scottish side and immigrated to Ulster, Ireland. Right. And the Scots-Irish migration began in the early 17th century when Britain's King James I encouraged his Scottish people to migrate across the Irish Sea to Ireland, creating a cultural group today referred to in America as Scots-Irish. Presbyterian James wished to convert and control his Irish Catholic subjects by planting loyal Scottish Protestants in Ireland. He also was kind of using them as a shield. Yeah, basically. (laughs) To do this, he confiscated the lands of the Earls of Ulster and bestowed them upon Scottish and English lords on the condition that they settle the territory with tenants from Scotland and England. This was known as the Great Settlement or the King's Plantation and was begun in 1610. 
At that time, Lowland Scots settled in the Ulster region of Ireland, where they became known as Ulster Scots. Mm -hmm. Unwanted in an unfriendly land, these Presbyterian Scots suffered persecution from their Catholic Irish neighbors, contributing to the mid-century civil war there that caused much destruction, as well as from the Anglican English. Over the course of the century, many Scots-Irish immigrated to the New World. Word of opportunity and freedom spread to the Ulster Scots through Irish crews coming back from American ports describing the wonders of the New World. Between the 1680s and 1815, at least 100,000 Ulster Scots embarked on a new migration to North America. Mm-hmm. So my source said 250,000, but in any case, it was a whole lot. Yeah, and I saw a couple of different, <laughs> uh-huh. and possibly that was the number that migrated between that hundred years mm-hmm. and more people yeah. came, or, yeah. Okay, so the reasons that the Scots-Irish left for America were numerous and often cumulative. Mm-hmm. Like many of them were farmers on rented land and combinations of high rent and dishonest landlords, crop failures and unfairly low prices for the crops they did grow all combined to make America look like a better choice. Right. By close to the end of the 18th century, the standard fare to cross the Atlantic was approximately four pounds with one guinea, which was a pound and a shilling, like a dollar and a quarter, right. due as a down payment. For this price, the immigrant could bring one trunk along for belongings. They traveled light, however, as their possessions were meager. Most had sold off the majority of their worldly goods and carried the cash with them to buy new household objects when they arrived. Right. And in America, the word Irish originally referred to these Presbyterian sons and daughters of the Emerald Isle who immigrated beginning in the 1700s. When the Catholic Irish began arriving in the mid-1800s, the Protestants soon took to calling themselves Scots-Irish to distinguish themselves from their longtime rivals. The majority of the Scots-Irish immigrants settled along the Atlantic coast. Eventually, these areas could not accommodate all of the immigrants, and by the 1780s, Scots-Irish were pushed into the western Appalachian mountain region of the Carolinas and Tennessee. Mm-hmm. One of the first places the Scots-Irish settled was Pennsylvania, because Maryland was Catholic and crowded, mm-hmm. and Virginia and the Carolinas, though they would get there eventually, mm-hmm. were dominated by plantations and slaving, which take money the Scots-Irish didn't have. Right. New York and New England wanted nothing to do with the Ulster dissenters, so they looked to Pennsylvania, which had a reputation for being religiously tolerant. It was started by Quakers and was already home to a fair number of Welsh Quakers, mm-hmm. who are the source of the distinctive Welsh place names in the area north north and west of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. This freedom appealed greatly to the Presbyterian Scots-Irish, who had been persecuted by Catholics and Anglicans for generations, and Pennsylvania also had plenty of good farmland. In the mid-1750s or so, the colonies of Virginia and Pennsylvania opened up new areas for settlement in the Alleghenies, the section of the Appalachians in western Pennsylvania and Virginia, and the Shenandoah Valley. Mm-hmm. They wanted settlers to serve as a buffer between the eastern parts of the colonies and the Indians and French in the west. This was not the first time the Scots-Irish had been used as a living barricade, like you right. said, <laughs> and many of them followed the Great Philadelphia Wagon Road into the Shenandoah Valley. Mm-hmm. So, the culture that they brought over and planted in Appalachia. Words often used to describe the Appalachian Mountain people are proud, self-sufficient, independent, deeply spiritual, and private. They have strong family ties, care deeply about traditions, nature, and the land, and enjoy farming, hunting, and fishing. They are great storytellers with a wonderful sense of often sarcastic humor. They sometimes tend to distrust strangers. 
This is all very accurate. Yeah. (laughs) Author and U.S. Senator Jim Webb puts forth a thesis in his book, Born Fighting, to suggest that the character traits he ascribes to the Scotch-Irish, such as loyalty to kin, extreme mistrust of governmental authority and legal structures, and a propensity to bear arms and use them, help to shape the American identity. Barry A. Van, author of Rediscovering the South's Celtic Heritage and In Search of Ulster Scotsland, The Birth and Geotheological Imaginings of a Transatlantic People, in these, Van argues that these traits have left their imprint on the Upland South and may manifest themselves in conservative voting patterns and religious affiliation that characterizes the Bible Belt. Indeed. Yeah, I do have some issues with Born Fighting, but it is an interesting book. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit here about how the Scots-Irish brought us NASCAR. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Um, So it starts with making moonshine or corn whiskey. It can also be other things, but it's usually corn. And I've heard that the name moonshine is technically brought over from Scotland. Farmers would often distill excess crop into alcohol because it kept longer and was more lucrative. And some places, the moonshine was even used as currency. Mm -hmm. So in 1791, the government put a really high tax on domestic liquor. Mm -hmm. Producers then took to hiding their stills in the hills and hollers <laughs> and held off the government's attempts to collect in what became known as the Whiskey Rebellion. Right. The government relented and the tax was abolished, but many stills stayed hidden. This practice came in handy later during Prohibition. Mm-hmm. These folks had been making moonshine for generations at this point and were used to hiding the results from authority. <laughs> but now that liquor itself was illegal, transporting it during a sale was risky. Enter the bootlegger. Mm-hmm. Bootlegger was a term for someone who smuggled whiskey. The term comes from the habit of hiding booze flasks and boot tops back in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. So these folks would run the liquor to drop-off points, and run-ins with police gave them some serious driving skills. (laughs) And they would often race against each other on the days when they weren't running moonshine. And those races between stock cars souped up to outrun police during moonshine runs evolved into today's stock car racing. (laughs) And that, my friends, is a short version of how my ancestors brought us NASCAR. And Kavinsky and Ronan. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the dialect of the people of the Scots-Irish in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. A quote from The Dialect of the Appalachian People by Wylan P. Dial, which is a copyrighted publication of West Virginia Archives and History. Aside from its antiquity, the most outstanding feature of the dialect is its masculine flavor, robust and virile. This is a language spoken by a red-blooded people who have colorful phraseology born in their bones. They tend to call a spade a spade in no uncertain terms. No, the baby didn't come early, the wedding came late, remarked one (laughs) proud grandpa. Such people have small patience with the pallid descriptive limitations of standard English. They are not about to be put off with the rather insipid remark, my, it's hot, or isn't it cold out today? They want to know just how hot or cold. It's hotter than hinges of hell, or it's blue cold out there. (laughs) (laughs) No idea. You say, I don't know. (laughs) It's blue cold out there. Okay. (laughs) Other common descriptive phrases for cold are freely translated. It's colder, no witch's bosom. (laughs) I always saw a colder witch's tit. Yes. I I believe that is what he he was referring to. Or it's colder, no well digger's backside. That one I hadn't heard. I've heard that. And I've also heard it's colder than a well digger's tits. Just because. 
<laughs> I also found a documentary called Mountain Talk. Yeah. And oh my goodness, it definitely feels like home. Right. Like it uh, starts out with an adorable little old man using a ham radio, yeah. describing where he's at in North Carolina. Yeah. yeah, there was a lady who said basically that she had lived in DC for a while and that she'd rather have a broke back in hell than ever live there again. <laughs> Like, oh my god, you are like this adorable, cute little, like, blonde grandma that's just like, <laughs> it was very cute. Uh, but yeah, it's just very good. And yeah, so having been away from Appalachia for more than a decade and having lived with people with different dialects than mine for even longer than that, mm-hmm. I have sadly pretty much lost my accent unless I'm talking to home. Right. Or if I'm excited or angry. At one point, however, my accent was so thick that I was once asked by the other kids in my summer camp, who were all fellow West Virginians, by the way, mm-hmm. where the heck I was from. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, there's actually some question about where the Appalachian dialect comes from. One thought was that since Appalachia is so isolated and the dialect shares several characteristics of 17th and 18th century or Elizabethan English, that it's the isolation that caused it. And it's basically Mm -hmm. like, yeah, this probably does have something to do with it. But there's also a tendency for people who migrate out of Appalachia to retain the accent for at least a couple of generations. Mm -hmm. And the Scots-Irish absolutely contributed to the dialect as well, as there are a number of similarities between the Appalachian dialect and those of Ireland and Scotland, mostly like vowel sounds. And Mm -hmm. it appears, however, that the Appalachian dialect, like most things in America, is a mixture of a whole bunch of influences. Right. According to linguist Lorian Hightail, a lot of mountain vernacular comes from Gaelic and or Celtic roots. Examples include the use of what in place of that, as in he's the man what went to church. Mm-hmm. Another is the use of on to demark the bestowing of emotions, as in she was loving on that boy. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who are sometimes grammatically incorrect, we can lay some blame on the Scots-Irish influence, (laughs) as in the use of who with instead of the formal with whom. (laughs) Absolutely. I never use with you. (laughs) Yeah. Hightail said there is no word for only in Gaelic, so there is not but one or there ain't but one are ways to get around saying there is only one. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I'm a fixin' to milk the cow has its roots in fix as a Gaelic synonym for do or make. One can still hear some of the original dialect in the more isolated mountain communities. If you find yourself in such places, listen closely for unique words and sayings like a childing, pregnant. Arm baby is a child small enough to be carried in someone's arms. A hoop and a holler. (laughs) It's a long distance. Ain't had much school housing. Isn't very educated. (laughs) Bonnie is good. Mm -hmm. A death watch. It's a ticking insect in the walls of a house that meant death in the family. Mm -hmm. At, as in like, I already ate. Oh, I done it. Nice. (laughs) Look, seriously, like, yeah, yeah, no. Do you want want me to fix you something to eat? No, I done it. Or fur, and it's for far. It ain't fur, just down the road a piece. <laughs> a graveyard cough is a deep tubercular cough. Mm-hmm. Kiver for covers. Are you cold? Get you a kiver. <laughs> a pap would be father, mm-hmm. like pappy, I guess. Yes, yeah, basically. And then raise cane <laughs> to cause a ruckus. Mm-hmm. Yan or yander mm-hmm. for like over there mm-hmm. or yan side or like just the farthest side. Yeah, that side over there, basically. <laughs> and then mama would call a closet a press and a slip was a petticoat. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, now um, we're going to talk about music. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the parts I was most excited about. Appalachian music is very, very influenced by the Scots-Irish. Navita mentioned earlier that we have the Scots-Irish to thank for country music. And this is very much true in a kind of roundabout way. Mm-hmm. So country has its roots in bluegrass, which comes pretty much directly from the folk music the Scots-Irish brought along with them. Right. The instruments associated with Appalachian folk music are also from the Scots-Irish, or at least like the way that they're used is mm-hmm. like the fiddle and the flute are very common in traditional Celtic music and follow the Scots-Irish to Appalachia. And there's an iconic Appalachian instrument that was actually developed by the Scots-Irish, the dulcimer, which is a stringed instrument that looks kind of like a cross between a violin and a small skinny guitar. Mm-hmm. It's a musical descendant of the Scheitolt, which the German neighbors of the Scots-Irish in Pennsylvania brought over. Mm-hmm. The Scots-Irish borrowed and modified the Scheitolt into the dulcimer while on the way to the Shenandoah Valley, and it kind of died out in the German community. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find most interesting is that so many of the songs brought over by the Scots-Irish, they still survive today and they've been passed down through generations many times with no one today realizing where the songs actually come from Hmm. bits of these ballads have ended up in in, and inspired many bluegrass and country songs and also were just passed down as old songs or maybe songs from across the water Mm -hmm. as a small anecdote of an example of this in college i discovered a musical group named kukanandy and they did a rendition of their namesake song, which is a traditional Irish tune, on one of their albums. And I was either playing it or singing it to myself, I don't remember which. And my mama, who lived in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky all her life, was like, oh, I know that song. We used to sing it when I was little. Uh-huh. And I'd never heard it before. Mm-hmm. So if you're all interested in going further into the history of Appalachian music or Scots-Irish history and how they interact, I highly recommend The Wayfaring Strangers by Fiona Ritchie and Doug Orr. Mm-hmm. It delves into all those in much greater detail and comes with a CD of some of these songs being performed mm-hmm. and less relevantly has pictures of my mountains including some that I actually recognize like Mount Pisgah which is just outside of Asheville. Mm-hmm. Fiona Ritchie is the host of the Thistle and Shamrock radio show which showcases traditional Scottish and Irish music and which I absolutely adore and Doug Orr was the president of my college when I went there. Mm-hmm. On sunny days he could often be found playing bluegrass music with other musicians often other professors like my calculus professor would usually be there <laughs> outside the student union and Warren Wilson also hosts the Swan and Noah Gathering every summer which is almost like an MFA program for bluegrass and traditional music. That's cool. That's mm-hmm. really awesome. Yeah, I found a short little interview clip from one of the local radio stations where they were talking about the book that you just mentioned and mm-hmm. some of the history there. Mm-hmm. Folklore. So folklore. I found an amazing paper written by John Richards of West Virginia State University entitled Folk Magic and Protestant Christianity in Appalachia that I'm just going to have to suggest as further reading. (laughs) There was also a really great article again on Atlas Obscura that I wish I could read in its entirety here. And instead, I'll do my best to be brief. (laughs) So Appalachian folk magic grew out of the interactions of three main cultural groups, the Scots-Irish who immigrated to the mountainous regions, Mm -hmm. the indigenous Cherokee, and then the Pennsylvania Dutch, Mm -hmm. the Germans, who migrated to the area through the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Mm -hmm. There were also cultural and practical exchanges with African or Caribbean slaves as they were moved through to and from the Deep South, Mm -hmm. and they would share some of their own practices from their homelands. 
Appalachian folk magic goes by many names, depending on where it's practiced in the region and who's doing the practicing. Mm-hmm. Root work, folk medicine, folk magic, kitchen witchery, hoodoo. Mm-hmm. In the old days, hospitals were often too far away and a little suspicious to mountain people. When accidents and illnesses happened, the locals relied on what they called granny witches. Mm-hmm. And these traditional folk healers were skilled in herbalism, home remedies, spells, and energy work. Mm-hmm. Some granny witches specialized depending on whether they were more gifted in healing, midwifery, and such realms of magic, or if they were more in tune with dowsing for water, ley lines, energy vortexes, and the making of charms and potions. <laughs> A current practitioner and teacher of hoodoo from Asheville, North Carolina, Asheville. Byron Ballard, points out that folk magic practices were developed by cultures in the old world that lacked a sense of agency. When you live in a feudal system, you don't have a lot of access to justice or healing, she said. Their practices became a form of peasant medicine and psychology. When folk magic practices were brought to Southern Appalachia, they took hold there as well because they helped provide a sense of personal agency and justice for impoverished mountain dwellers. Between the Cherokee and the Scotch-Irish, there were also some strong similarities with the wee folk or the fairy folk. Mm-hmm. The um, Salagi, maybe? Yeah, Salagi, and I, I hate to say that wrong. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure how that's said, but that's the, the peoples that are now called the Cherokee. They called their magical beings neighbors. They had a name, which translates to the little people. Mm-hmm. And both groups of people often left offerings for the little ones who helped them. Mm-hmm. This could be a bowl of cream sat on the back porch berries, small pieces of cake or cornbread. And to this day, you'll find a granny woman leaving a bowl of cream on her back doorstep or throwing a bite of her cornbread cake out a window before placing it on her family's table. It's also said that the ideas of fairies, pixies, and the knocker influenced the development of modern Appalachian mountain legends such as the wood booger and wampus cat. Wampus cat! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So one of the contributions I was surprised to find that was made by the Scots-Irish are the Jack Tales. These are a group of fairy tales, legends, and nursery rhymes, of which the most widely known is Jack and the Beanstalk, Mm -hmm. that all focus on a central character named Jack. They have all been passed down through generations of storytellers who draw on traditions dating back to the Shanachi in Ireland and Scotland. I probably said that wrong. Sorry. These were storytellers who kept these fairy tales and legends and ancient Celtic and Nordic sagas alive by telling them around the fire. Now I'm reminded of my papa, who used to, who was the family storyteller and would sit on the front porch and tell tales for hours on end. Mm-hmm. And I'll always remember the time my brother, who was about four or five at the time, proved him in listening by spinning his own tale. And papa didn't think he could top it. Okay. It was a tale about my brother and his imaginary friend wrecking a jeep back in 1940-something. Okay. And my papa I was like, all right, son, that's it. I'm done. And got up and went in the house. <laughs> and it was months before he told another story. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Ancestral spirit and ghost workings are also passed down through Appalachian folk traditions. These practices trace back to Scotland and Ireland and the traditions of the local native people. Haints are widely feared as angry ancestral spirits, and many spells, charms, and rituals are implemented to keep them from creating trouble for the living. One simple yet ubiquitous protective spell involves painting the doors and window shutters of a home haint blue. Hmm. Haint blue is a bright baby blue with a periwinkle tinge. This color is believed to repel the spirits and keep them out of the home. Does this perhaps ring any raven cycle bells? 
300 Fox Way is, of course, painted blue, and Noah can't enter. Interesting. The aura of psychics in general are described as blue by Mallory, and that, of course, is how Blue got her name in a deleted scene from the Raven Cycle. Uh And then finally, there is an awesome Appalachian ghost story podcast called The Moonlit Road that has storytellers from this region and other southern areas telling their own families' ghost stories or rural legends. I highly recommend it for anyone who may have an interest in those intersections. I'm totally going to have to look that up. I think I I did recommend it to you at one time. It is very cool because it's got that kind of not urban legend, but rural legend Mm -hmm. feel or like kind of those ghost stories or things that happened to my cousin's cousin, Uh like that that kind of like family (laughs) passed down, but they're all storytellers. And it's really great because you're getting to hear the stories in the voices of those people. Right. And the vernacular you get to hear kind of like, Mm -hmm. this is the cadence of how these stories are told. Mm -hmm. All right. So we'll get back into the analysis. Chapter 11. It's a Ronan, Greyman, Adam point of view chapter. A lot of switching going on here. Mm-hmm. And there are three men, three restless knights. Right. I find it so interesting how this chapter ties these three characters in particular together uh-huh. just by virtue of his shared POV. Right. And that night, Ronan dreamt of trees. And yet he still doesn't think he's ever been to Caveswater before. Right. And, well, we learned later that this is where he starts to suspect. Uh-huh. Far below, there was a heartbeat that wrapped around the world, slower and stronger and more inexorable than Ronan's own. Mm-hmm. He's tapping into the ley line. Later, a passage with Adam says, closing his eyes, Adam allowed the ley line to seize his heart for a few beats. Mm-hmm. Now he knew which direction it ran beneath their feet. That's page 59 of The Raven King. Mm-hmm. These are the first two things I highlighted in this chapter as well. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask you what you thought the heartbeat was. And you beat me to it. (laughs) Yeah. He'd grown up with this reoccurring dream forest. No one there but Ronan, the trees, and the things the trees dreamt of. The trees? It's sort of, again, an external force. Mm, That's a really good point. Mm -hmm. And Ronan refers to himself as a king in this dreaming. The world was his to bend, his to burn. It's very Mm Kavinsky-like. Agreed. This is very similar to Kavinsky's philosophy on dreaming. Yeah. we find out later. And then the trees called him Grey Warren and his skin prickles. It's like, has he not heard this word before? I found a passage from the first draft of the novel. Grey Warren. The word made him feel funny, like one of those words that sounds like what it means. Nasty, lovely, furious. Only he didn't know what Grey Warren meant. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually know that he has heard it before. Unless mm-hmm. unless in his dreams, maybe somewhere and not remembering. Right. Because Neil might not have told him the name for it. Yeah. Well, but N- Niall isn't mm. a Grey Warren. Which mm, I guess that's true. Later in the Dream Thieves, Ronan, didn't you know my father were both Grey Warrens? Orphan Girl says, you are the only one. In English, she adds, many thieves, one Grey Warren. And that's page 415 of the Dream Thieves. Mm. Hmm. 
That's interesting. What I, makes I, I might yeah, what makes him a Grey Warden versus Because like I thought that was kind of like an inherited thing. Like, you know, you are the only one, meaning like your dad's no longer here, therefore right. Yeah, I think it's interesting too because it is very specific that Niall Lynch was not a Grey Warren. He mm-hmm. was simply a dream thief like Kavinsky. And how much of that was because Ronan connected to the spirit of a place or he manifested something that needed to be manifested in the world. So here, Orphan Girl appears for the first time on page, I believe. Yeah, I think so. And I also, I love the fact that she's peering cautiously from behind a tree. Right. It's very opal. Right. When Ronan had first dreamt of her, she had long honey blonde hair. And see previous episode regarding fairy tales and blonde hair. I mean, seriously, are all dream creatures blonde? (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps so. Yeah. And although he had aged, she had not. If listeners have read the opal short story, they'll know why that line is particularly poignant. Uh Her presence made it easier to pull things from his dreams. That's the role of the psychopomp in one line. Absolutely. Ronan's dream gives him hundreds of wasps crawling over his skin. Later, he explains that this is one of the reasons he sleeps away from Monmouth. Right. And he says, there aren't many this time, only a few hundred. Mm-hmm. WTF, Ronan? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, a, wow, your dreams. <laughs> yeah, I know. Also, I find the fact that they turn into crimson ladybugs super cool. Right. He's in this dream and he hears, Ronan Lynch, loquere por nobis speak for us. So at the end of the last episode, I asked if anyone who speaks or reads Latin really, really well, please get in touch with us. And this is part of the reason why. So Mm -hmm. suddenly he faced a striated rock nearly as tall as he was. Cabeswater takes Ronan back in time to leave the message that the trees requested of him. And at this point, my first time through, I was like, oh, Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So Ronan is disoriented. It was familiar in a way that was too solid to be a dream, and Ronan felt a ripple of uncertainty. Orphan Girl encourages him, telling him he's sleeping, and suddenly he thinks he's a king again. Mm -hmm. And then he grabs some berries that are growing at the base of the rock, and he thinks he crushed them until his fingers were dark with juice and blood, dark as the ink on his back. Mm -hmm. He writes, Arboris loqui latine. Wasn't there supposed to be a joke on the rock? Yes, yes, there was. A (laughs) dirty Ronan-style joke. Yeah, I wish we knew what that was. Mm -hmm. And then Orphan Girl looks at him and says, you've done this before. Mm -hmm. Time was a circle, a rut, a worn tape. Ronan never got tired of playing. Right. Which is really fascinating. Yeah. And the girl said, don't forget the glasses. It's interesting, too, because he did not ask for glasses. They are Mm -hmm. left for him. Right. That's really interesting. You're right. I also find something haunting about the line, Kavinsky's sunglasses look back at him eyeless. Mm Mm-hmm. Take me with you, the orphan girl asks. And did Aurora ask the same? And why would dream creatures want out of the dream? Aurora may have asked the same thing if Niall's dreams got like Ronan's. Mm-hmm. Like, Ronan's dreams are terrifying and have almost killed him. Maybe she's stuck there with the stuff he runs away from. Yeah, does she exist outside of when he's actually dreaming? Mm-hmm. I think the answer is yes. And then the end line of Ronan's POV, he woke up. It's a bookend 
of the first line. Uh The POV changes to the gray man. That night, the gray man dreamt of being stabbed. And at first, he felt each individual wound. It also seems like the gray man can feel pain in a dream, Mm -hmm. like Ronan had described last episode. Mm -hmm. And the quote, stolen by that thief, the knife. And the gray man himself is a thief here. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that wholeness stolen by that thief, the knight. That verse piercing was the worst. Mm -hmm. And first cut is the deepest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he thinks to himself, the gut was a verb and a noun. His literary brain is still functioning Mm -hmm. even at this then he'd been stabbing this piece of meat for a lifetime. He'd been born when it started and he'd die when he was done. Mm-hmm. I find it so disturbing, as does the gray man, I'm sure, that the stabber is faceless. Then he is stabbing a faceless piece of meat. It's like he's sloughing through the detachment that he needs to do his job. Right. And he thinks to himself, hunger was a species and he was the best of that kind. I really, really love this line as well. Mm-hmm. First, he is being stabbed, and then he is the stabber, and then he is the weapon. Uh, I found that interesting as well, because he's been all three, really, in in certain ways. And it brought to mind, a sword is never a killer. It is a tool in the killer's hand. Mm. That's page 140 of The Dream Thieves. As his scenes bookend, the gray man also wakes up, then rolls over and goes back to sleep. And then we switch to Adam. Uh That night, Adam didn't dream. This is the classic storytelling three beat with the last one inverted. Right. Adam suffocates himself to put himself to sleep. He can't even make that easy on himself. Mm. He's so exhausted. Sleep would overthrow him like he has to be conquered. Uh Uh-huh. The wrongness, the deadness of the woman still hung in the air of that room or maybe inside him. What did I do? I still want to know who or what exactly he's seeing here. Yeah, later it's revealed during Adam's initiation with Persephone that Cabeswater has been sending him visions of dead people to get his attention. The quote, Adam heard a groan. It was the woman he'd seen in in his apartment, the very first spirit. She wore a pale, old-fashioned dress. Another spirit appeared, hand outstretched to him, and another, and another. All of the flashes he had seen, a dozen figures, incomprehensible. And that's page 354 of The Dream Thieves. Okay. And I find the line, what did I do, seems to echo Ronan's, who am I? Yeah, it really does. Mm -hmm. The things he thinks about, tries not to think about. Blue's face when he lost his temper. The smell of the forest as he sacrificed himself. There's so much on his mind. Yeah. And he began to wonder if he'd been making bad decisions, if he'd been a bad decision. Mm. Oh, sweetie. Yeah, I don't want to touch on it too deeply, but the memory he has of his father talking to his mother, I regret the day. Uh Uh-huh. What an asshole. Absolutely. The grades, concrete proof of his success at something. It's like he has so much to be proud of. I know. And then he thinks he'd said no for so long that he didn't know when to say yes. That again echoes Ronan's quote from chapter nine. Adam was so used to the right way being painful. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe it will all be for nothing anyway when they smell the Henrietta dirt beneath your fingernails. That's not something you need to be ashamed of. Yeah. And then he thinks about Gansey tiptoeing, just like Adam had learned to tiptoe around his father. He sees it, he knows it, and that means he can change it. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to. Yeah. He needed a reset button. Just push the reset button, Adam perish, and start him again. 
and then immediately he thinks he didn't sleep and when he did he didn't dream that echoes the very beginning of right. his section and so he's starting the whole process over again going over and over and over this stuff mm-hmm. in his mind all night it's like that's not the kind of reset you meant yeah <laughs> the last line of adam's section is also a three beat it's inverting the pattern ending ronan and grayman's povs mm. well all right do you have an MVC? I do have an MVC. <laughs> oh, yay! Who gets to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> oh, no! Who did you pick? Adam! Oh, my God! <laughs> oh! <laughs> Oh. oh, oh! All right. I guess we rush him. I mean, I'm really happy with either of them winning. Ready? Are you ready? One, three, shoot! Yes! <laughs> Boo! <laughs> You're like, yes, I won. Boo! Ronan lost. Oh, no. uh, well, I'm sorry. No, it. I mean, I do think that Adam deserves it. He is going mm. through so much growth Absolutely. in these passages, in these chapters. Mm-hmm. He is setting himself up for the success that will happen later on in the book. Absolutely. He's recognizing what he needs to change, what he needs to fix. It's going to take a while before he gets there, but he is absolutely working on it. Absolutely. So. I agree. So <laughs> why did you pick Ronan? Um, <laughs> Just the amount of insight that he's showing in these chapters and just he is struggling with stuff himself, trying to figure out his dreaming stuff. So much of the stuff that he's going through as well. He's struggling, but he's able to reach out Mm -hmm. in some ways. Right. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Maggie Watch 2019. (laughs) Because it will be 2019 when this is released. Oh, my God. In case folks have not been on Tumblr or Twitter since Christmas, Maggie very sneakily and without warning released a new holiday short story in the TRC universe told from Declan's point of view. And you know how much I love that boy. (laughs) I don't think I can say anything else without it being a spoiler. I made mm. Shannon read it, like, when we were at Christmas. <laughs> uh, I, I, maybe, like, I guess you could say that it is a flashback. Yeah. And it is heartwarming and sad all at the same time. It made me cry a lot, <laughs> which is not a spoiler. That's just because... It's Declan. It's Declan. <laughs> but if you have not had a chance to read it, we'll link to it in the show notes. And if you haven't already listened, we covered the previous holiday short stories last year, 2017, in our special episode, Henrietta Holidays. Uh-huh. And then supporter shoutouts. We had a comment sent to us through our WordPress site. Who knew? <laughs> From, and I'm not sure if this person personally pronounces it Sorcha, Searsha, or Sersha, because I've seen it all. And they said, hi, ladies, love the podcast and the nerdy deep discussions about TRC. It's exactly what I was dreaming of. That's so awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Just one thing. In the audiobooks, Ronan's dad's name is pronounced Neil, not Niall. (laughs) Thought you might want to know. 
Thanks again for the great podcast. And I think this is my fault. I've actually been wondering slash dreading the possibility of being called out on this because this person is correct. It is, yeah. it is pronounced Neil in <laughs> yeah. the audiobook. Yeah, Will Patton pronounces it Neil in the audiobook, sometimes leaning pretty heavily on the Neil and sometimes softening it a little more to something like Nile, kind mm. of a little bit more short one syllable Nile. I've looked all over for the correct way to pronounce it, even though we do say we use the pronunciations from the audiobook. Mm-hmm. Many folks seem to push back on the Neil way of saying it, and I do personally prefer Niall. Also, my stepdad's name is Neil, and so my brain does a little short circuit when I see N-A-I-L-L on the page and try to say it Neil. <laughs> <laughs> I did check in with an Irish TRC fandom friend. And they said they'd lean more towards the Nile as well. Not that that is a definitive answer, but I think I'll probably inadvertently keep making a liar out of our disclaimer. (laughs) (laughs) And then to our other listeners, how do you pronounce it? (laughs) But just wanted to say thank you so much for getting in touch. That was really great. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, thanks for joining us today. Our next episode will cover chapters 12 through 14 of The Dream Thieves with a deep dive on the Triple Goddess. Yes, that one's going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to that uh, one. It's going to so, be a lot of fun. Yeah. However, our recording schedule is several weeks ahead of the release schedule, so please do follow us online for announcements of what chapters we will be covering next. And do send us your thoughts because, like I said, we'd love to hear your contributions to the conversation. Questions, theories. Yeah. You can find us practically everywhere on social media at Raven Girls, R A V I N G I R L S, mm-hmm. on Twitter at Raven Girls, on Tumblr at ravengirls.tumblr.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash ravengirls, and you can reach us directly at ravengirls at gmail.com. Yep. And you can reach me at substanceparty.tumblr.com or at gmail at substanceparty with all of the A's taken out, S U B S T N C E P R T Y at gmail.com. And if we have referenced a post or article in the podcast, we will do our very best to include source links to those in the show notes. The Raven Cycle and all affiliated properties are copyright Maggie Stiebotter and Scholastic Incorporated. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, whoop whoop Raven Girls! (laughs) (laughs) I think they're cute. (laughs) <laughs> I almost put something smells rotten in the state of Denmark, like boat shoes without socks. <laughs> I thought that might be too much. Wow. <laughs> oh, God, I'm glad that I think I'm funny. <laughs> okay. Okay.